0: Chapter 2 of the French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The French Revolution by Robert Madison Johnston. Chapter 2 Versailles. At the close of the eighteenth century, France had more nearly reached her growth than any of her great European rivals she was far more like the france of today than might at first be supposed by an englishman american or german thinking of what his own country accomplished during the nineteenth century her population of about twenty-five million was three times more numerous than that of england paris with six hundred thousand inhabitants or more was much nearer the present-day city in size than any other capital of europe except naples socially economically politically notwithstanding gross abuses there was great development and the reformer who remodeled the institutions of france in eighteen hundred declared that the administrative machine erected by the bourbons was the best yet devised by human ingenuity large manufacturing cities and a number of active ports indicated the advent of a great economic period all this reposed however on a very incongruous foundation feudalism medievalism autocracy had built up a structure of caste distinction and class privilege to which custom age stagnation and ignorance lent an air of preordained and indispensable stability the church most privileged of all corporations turned her miracles and her terrors both present and future into the most powerful buttress of the fabric the noblesse supreme as a caste almost divided influence with the church The two, hand in hand, dominated France outside the larger towns. Each village had its curé and its seigneur. The curé collected his tithes and inculcated the precepts of religion, precepts which, at the close of the 18th century, preached Bourbonism as one of the essential manifestations of providence on earth. The seigneur, generally owning the greater part of all freehold property, not only weighed as a landlord but exercised many exclusive privileges, and applied the most drastic of sanctions to the whole as the local administrator of justice there were hundreds of devout priests and of humane seigneurs but a proportion conspicuous if small were otherwise and the system gave such an opportunity for evil doing that opinion naturally but unjustly converted the ill deeds of the few into the characteristic of the whole class the culmination of this system its visible and emphatic symbol fastened on paris like a great bloated tumor eating into the heart of France, was Versailles. But compared with class privilege, the Church, and the Seigneur, Versailles was a recent phenomenon, invented by Louis the Fourteenth little more than one hundred years before the outbreak of the Revolution. At the beginning of the seventeenth century the French monarchy had somewhat suddenly emerged from the wars of religion immensely strengthened. Able statesmen, Henry the Fourth, Sully, Richelieu, Mazarin, Louis XIV had brought it out of its struggle with the feudal aristocracy triumphant. Before the wars of religion began, the French noble was still mediaeval in that he belonged to a caste of military specialists, and that his provincial castle was both his residence and his stronghold. The struggle itself was maintained largely by his efforts, by the military and political power of great nobles, Guises, Montmorencys, and others. But when the struggle closes, both religion, its cause, and the great noble, its supporter, sink somewhat into the background, while the king, the kingly power, fills the eye. And the new divine right monarchy, triumphant over the feudal soldier and gladly accepted as the restorer of order by the middle class, sets to work to consolidate this success. The result is Versailles. The spectacular palace built by Louis the Fourteenth threw glamour and prestige about the triumphant monarchy. It drew the great nobles from their castles and peasantry, and converted them into courtiers, functionaries, and office holders. To catch a ray of royal favor was to secure the gilt edging of distinction, and so even the literature, the theology, the intellect of France quickly learned to revolve about the dazzling Sun King of Versailles, Louis the Versailles could not, however, long retain such elements of vitality as it possessed. It rapidly accomplished its work on the feudal aristocracy, but only at a great price. With Louis the Fourteenth gone, it began to crumble from corruption within, from criticism without. Louis the Fifteenth converted the palace into the most gorgeous of brothels, and its inmates into the most contemptible and degraded of harlots and pimps. The policy of France, still royal under Louis XIV, was marked by the greed, lewdness, and incapacity of Richelieu and Dubois, of Pompadour and Du Barry. When the effluvious corpse of Louis XV was hastily smuggled from Versailles to the Cathedral of Saint-Denis in 1774, that seemed to mark the final dissolution into rottenness of the Bourbon-Versailles regime that regime already stank in the nostrils of public opinion a new force which for half a century past had been making rapid progress in france the great religious and military struggle of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries had in one direction resulted in enhancing the prestige and crystallizing the power of the french monarchy in another direction it had resulted in establishing even more firmly the new intellectual position of europe the spirit of inquiry of criticism of freedom of thought The Roman or supreme doctrine of authority had been questioned, and questioned successfully. It could not be long before the doctrine of Bourbon authority must also be questioned. Even if French thought and literature did for a moment pay tribute at the throne of Louis XIV, the closing years of the century were marked by the names of Leibniz, Bale, and Newton. The mercurial intelligence of France could not long remain stagnant with such forces as these casting their influence over European civilization the new century was not long in the regent philip of Orléans had not long been in power before france showed that versailles had ceased to control her literature a new rebelet with an eighteenth-century lisp montesquieu by seasoning his Lettres tre with a sauce piquante compounded of indecency and style succeeded in making the public swallow some incendiary morsels the king of france he declared drew his power from the vanity of his subjects while the pope was quote an old idol to whom incense is offered from sheer habit unquote nothing stronger has been said to this day a few years later in his esprit de loi he produced a work of european reputation which eventually proved one of the main channels for the conveyance of english constitutional ideas to the thinking classes of france An even greater influence than Montesquieu was Voltaire. He exercised an irresistible fascination on the intellectual class by the unrivaled lucidity and logic of his powerful yet witty prose. He carried common sense to the point of genius, threw the glamour of intellect over the materialism of his century, and always seized his pen most eagerly when a question of humanity and liberalism was at stake. He had a weak sides, was materialistic in living as in thinking, and had nothing of the martyr in his composition yet after his fashion he battled against obscurantism with all the zeal of a reformer he was in fact the successor of calvin but since calvin's day protestantism had been almost extirpated in france so that the gradual growth of the spirit of enquiry still proceeding below the surface had brought it to a point beyond protestantism it was atheism that voltaire stood for and with the vast majority of the people of france from that day to this the alternative lay between rigid catholicism on the one hand and rigid atheism on the other the innumerable shades of transition between these extremes in which english and german protestantism opened a pioneer track remained a sealed book for them in his letters on the english published in seventeen thirty four voltaire dwells less on the constitutional than on the religious questions liberty of conscience is what he struggles for and he discerns not only that it is more prudent to attack the church than the state but that it is more essential religion is at the root of the monarchical system even if the eighteenth-century ruler is apt to forget it and the church gives voltaire ample opportunity for attack the bishops and court abbes are often enough skeptics and libertines although every once in a while they turn and deal a furious blow to maintain the prestige and discipline of their ancient corporation and when for a few blasphemous words they send a boy like the chevalier de la barre to the scaffold to be mutilated and killed voltaire's voice rings out with a full reverberation of outraged humanity and civilization ecraser l'infame he believed that the revolution which he like so many others foresaw would begin by an attack on the priests. It was the natural error of a thinker, a man of letters, concerned more with ideas than facts, with theology than economics. Above all things, Voltaire stood out as a realist in the modern sense of the word, and if he detested the church, it was largely because it represented untruth. He did not deflect opinion to the same extent as his great contemporary Rousseau, but he represented it more. And of the men of the revolution, it was Robespierre, who reigned less than four months, who stood for Rousseau. While Bonaparte, who reigned fourteen years, was the true Voltairian. Just at the side of Voltaire stood the encyclopedists, led by Diderot and d'Alembert. The great work of reference which they issued penetrated into every intellectual circle not only of France, but of Europe, and brought with it the doctrines of materialism and atheism. However much they might be saturated with the ideas of church and state in the Roman bourbon form, many of its readers became unconsciously shaken in their fundamental beliefs and ready to question, to criticize, and, when the edifice began to tremble, to accept the revolution and the doctrine of the rights of the common man. Voltaire, Diderot, d'Alembert were at heart essentially aristocrats, For them, the common man was an untrustworthy brute of low instincts, and their revolution would have meant the displacement of an aristocracy of the sword by an aristocracy of the intellect. Rousseau stood for the opposite view. To him, it was only despotism that degraded man. Remove the evil conditions, and the common man would quickly display his inherent goodness and amiability. Tenderness to our fellows or fraternity was therefore the distinctive trait of manhood. The irrepressible exuberance of Rousseau's kindliness overflowed from his novels and essays into a great stream of fashionable sensibility. During the years of terrific stress that followed, during the butcheries of the guillotine and of the Grande Armée, it was the vogue to be soft-hearted, and even such a fire-eater as Murat would pour libations of tears over his friend's waistcoats at the slightest provocation. In his Contrat Social. Rousseau postulated the essential equality of the governor and the governed. But his sentimental attitude towards man involved a corresponding one towards the deity. Unable to accept Catholicism or even Christianity, he sought refuge from atheism in the arms of the autre suprême. It was this supreme being of Rousseau that was to become the official deity of France during the last days of the Reign of Terror an influence of a slightly different sort to that exercised by these writers was that of the theatre the century had seen the rise of the middle-class man and his attempts at self-expression the coffee-house and the freemasons lodge gave facilities for conversation discussion opinion and the increasing number of gazettes supplied these circles with information as to the course of political events but the gazettes themselves might not venture into the danger marked field of opinion and for the fast-growing public especially in the city of paris there was no opportunity for comment or criticism on the events of the day in a tentative way the theatre proved itself a possible medium in seventeen thirty voltaire produced his tragedy brutus it fell flat because of the lines et je porte en mon coeur a liberté gravée et les rois en horreur The audience was too loyal to Bourbonism to accept these sentiments. There were loud murmurs, and Brutus had to be withdrawn. As late as 1766, a play on the subject of William Tell was given to an empty house. No one would go to see a Republican hero. But from the 60s, matters changed rapidly. Audiences show great enthusiasm over rivalries of art, of actors, of authors, of opinions and every once in a while applaud or boo a sentiment that touches the sacred foundations of the social and political order at last an author appears on the scene keen witty unscrupulous resourceful to seize on this growing mood of the public and to play on it for his own glory and profit beaumarchais mirabeau Dumouriez, bonaparte these are the types of the adventurers of the revolution and the first only belongs to the period of incubation and also to the domain of letters. Thrown into the war of American independence by his double vocation of secret diplomatic agent and speculator in war supplies, he had espoused the cause of the American people with an enthusiasm that always blazed most brightly when a personal interest was at stake. His enthusiasm for American liberty was easily converted into enthusiasm for the liberty of his own class and to vindicate that he put figaro on the stage the first public performance of the Nois de figaro in seventeen eighty four was the culmination of a three years struggle louis the sixteenth had declared the play subversive and the author had raised a storm of protest in its behalf a special performance was conceded for the court and the parisian public irritated at being thus excluded then raised for the first time the cry of tyranny and oppression. When at last the government in its weakness made the final concession and permitted a public performance, the demand for seats was greater than had ever previously been known. The theater was packed. Great lords and ladies sat elbow to elbow with bourgeois and fashionable women. And when Figaro came on and declaimed against social injustice, the opposite parties in the house stormed approval or disfavor. Figaro is beaumarchais is the lower or middle-class man with nothing but his wits with which to force his way through the barriers which privilege has erected across every path along which he attempts to advance as the valet of count almaviva he has seen the man of privilege at close quarters and has sounded his rottenness and incapacity because you are a grand seigneur he says you think yourself a great genius but monsieur le Comte. To what do you really owe your great privileges? To having put yourself to the inconvenience of being born, nothing more. I, with all my ability and force, I, who can work for myself, for others, for my country, I am driven away from every occupation. That was what the pushing adventurer and witty dramatist had to say. But all through the country, thousands of plain, inconspicuous men, doctors, lawyers, merchants, farmers, even here and there a peasant or a noble, the best representatives of the deep-rooted civilization of France, of her keen intelligence, of her uprightness, of her humanity, revolted inwardly at the ineptitude and injustice of her government. As they saw it, the whole system seemed to revolve about Versailles, the abode of the bourbon king, the happy hunting-ground of the privileged courtier, the glittering abode of vice and debauchery, the sink through which countless millions were constantly drained while the poor starved the badge of dishonor and incapacity which had too frequently been attached to the conduct of france both in war and in peace the twenty-five millions without the gates gazed at the hundred thousand within and the more they gazed the louder and more bitter became their comment the dimmer and the more tawdry did the glitter of it all appear to them and the weaker and more half-hearted became the attitude of the one hundred thousand as they attempted by insolence and superciliousness to maintain the pose of their inherited superiority. End of chapter 2